Welcome. Today it's Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 16 to 21 and this is a two-part message so we'll finish next week. This is part one, the watchman's message and it's about repentance. So God is calling his people to repentance. But before we get into it, let's pray and then we'll do a memory verse together. So Father, I do thank you Lord for this awesome day with the sun shining and Lord it's, it's really beautiful. And Lord, we do have these great days, but Lord, we do have difficult times as well, where the sun isn't shining, metaphorically, and then we need to trust you. And we need to trust that what you've got in store for us is good. It's working out for our good. And so we see in the book of Ezekiel that he's going through some tough times. The nation of Israel is in a dark place. But Lord, he's being called to be a light in a dark world. And so I pray. Lord, you give us that same desire to be lights in a dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. So let's do a memory verse. So it's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. So we're trying to memorize this. So you ready? We'll all read it together. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So this is the secret to the Christian walk in this verse. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So the Christian walk is not about us trying hard. It's us submitting to God and allowing God to live his life in us. So today, what is a watchman? Ezekiel is called to be a watchman. That's the main focus of the next couple of weeks. Ezekiel 3, 16-21. And this is where God declares that Ezekiel is a watchman for the nation of Israel. But before we read that, we're going to jump to a parallel passage in chapter 33 of Ezekiel where God expands on this and there's a real-world example of what it means to be a watchman. And a watchman is like a sentry or a lookout, someone who's on the watch for danger and is going to warn people. And so as we understand what the watchman is or means using a real-world example, we can then apply it to the spiritual realm what it means for us to be watchmen as well. And as we go, we're going to focus today a lot on repentance. What is genuine repentance? And also another main theme in today's message is God's heart towards his people. Why is he so passionate about warning them? And therefore, he wants us to be passionate about warning people too. So this is all what we're going to learn today. So let's start by reading Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 9. It says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, that's like an enemy army, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, like a sentry or a lookout, when he sees the sword or the enemy army, Coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, that's what the trumpet was for, to warn the people, of the imminent danger, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword 
or the enemy army comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head, that is, his own responsibility. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, his own responsibility. But he who takes warning will save his life, he will escape from the enemy. Verse 6, But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, sin. This is where it goes from the the real world example into the spiritual. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The watchman will be held responsible for the citizen's death. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, his sin. But his blood I will require at your hand, so Ezekiel will be held responsible. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, his sin. But you have delivered your soul. Ezekiel will not be held responsible. So, the real world example that we have in Ezekiel about a watchman is that there's a city and they know there's an enemy coming. And this enemy, if they don't have a lookout, will come upon them unexpectedly and kill them. And so basically they assign a watchman to keep a lookout for danger and then warn the people by blowing the trumpet if the enemy approaches. So there's three possible outcomes here, just to summarize that passage. The watchman did warn the people, and the people did listen, and they were saved. They weren't killed or captured by the army. The enemy army coming in, that's the best option. Number two, the watchman did warn the people, but the people did not listen, and they perished. They were killed or captured by the enemy, the invading army. And number three, the watchman did not warn the people, and the people were not warned, and they perished. They were killed or captured by the enemy. So in the first two scenarios, the watchman fulfilled his responsibility. He warned the people, and then it was up to the people's choice, the people's responsibility, whether or not they responded. But whether or not they did, the watchman had been faithful to complete his task of being faithful to warn them. So he was not responsible for those who didn't listen. And we'll come back to that later on. Now in the third scenario, where the watchman did not warn the people, the watchman is guilty of gross neglect. He failed in his responsibility to warn the people. Imagine you're Neighbor's house is on fire, but you can't be bothered warning them, shouting out or banging on the door. And as a result, they're sleeping in the house and they burn to death while they're sleeping. Why? Because they weren't warned and they died. So in this case, the watchman is held responsible for their deaths. So this real world example, God turns to the spiritual in verses 7 to 9. He says, Therefore, 
you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. You see how personal this is? This is God's word, and we're warning them on behalf of God. And there's other scriptures we've come to talk about that. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, in his sin. Ezekiel is called to warn the people of the dangers and consequences of sin. Now what is sin? It's rebellion against God. And what does sin do? <laughs> Kills. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to an example of a watchman, the very first watchman. And who was that? God. He was the first watchman. He was the first person to warn someone about sin. God warned Adam concerning eating the forbidden fruit. And what did he say? In dying you shall die. And here we see God being the first watchman. And he's warning Adam of the deadly consequences of sin. So just under, I'm doing this so we can understand why God is so concerned about warning people about sin. So we're going to see here the consequences of sin. Genesis 2, 16-17 And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the Hebrew literally reads, For in the day that you eat of it, dying, you shall die. So we have two types of death here. One is a gradual death and one is an instant death. So the first death, the physical death, is the gradual death. Okay. So God tells Adam that rebellion or disobedience against him would result in death. And the physical death is this dying part. It's like a person is dying of cancer. And you know we're all dying of old age? Even, even the young ones <laughs> at the back there. Their, their bodies are dying too. <laughs> you know, people work out and really make their bodies really buff and really good looking, but you know what? Your body is dying. And so ever since Adam sinned, the aging process has started. As soon as we're born, basically we're dying. Mutations are building up in our cells and we're dying. We're dying of old age. So physical death is called the first death. And because of sin, because of the curse of sin, we are all dying. Our bodies will all die of old age if we don't die of something else first. And you can see Romans 8, 20-22 talks about that. Now the second death, this is spiritual death. This is the lake of fire or hell. And this is the instant death. So the you shall die. You shall die if you do this. The moment you do this, you shall die. So this means that Adam would die as soon as he disobeyed God. So this can't be physical death because Adam lived for almost another 930 years because we assume that this event, the fall, happened quite early on before he had kids. That's what the Bible says. Because all his kids were born in the image of Adam, not in the image of God. So if it's not physical death, then what other kind of death could this be referring to? Well, it has to be spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. Adam's love relationship with God was broken. Now, Jesus defined 
eternal life as knowing God in John 17.3. And that means to be in relationship with God, to experientially know God. Not just to know about God, but to know Him, to be in relationship with Him. And any person who is not in a relationship with God is spiritually dead. Their sin has separated them from God. And that's what Isaiah 59 verse 2 says. Your sin has separated you from God. And that's why the Bible calls the lake of fire or hell the second death. And there's a whole list of references there in Revelation talking about the lake of fire and the second death. Because everyone who ends up in the lake of fire or hell are irreversibly separated from God for all eternity. And if you want to know about what hell or the lake of fire is like, you can read Mark 9, 42-48. Jesus gives a graphic description of what it's going to be like there. The worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, it's going to be a horrible place, and it's for ever and ever. Now, because of Adam's sin, we are all born sinners. We are all spiritually dead when we're born. Did you realize that? We're all born separated from God. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, In sin my mother conceived me, meaning I was born a sinner, even from the time of conception. Why? Adam's sin. We are born in the nature or the image of Adam, a corrupted image of God. So this is why everybody needs to be saved. Everybody needs to hear the gospel so they can be saved from the second death by repenting, and that is turning from their sins and turning to God and believing, trusting that Jesus' death on the cross was a full payment for the sins of all mankind. And you can see Mark one fifteen and John 3.16. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, Repent and believe. There's two things. We'll get into repentance later, what exactly that is. It's not about you trying to be better. It's about submitting to God. But we'll talk more about that later. A person's separation from God becomes permanent when? For all born separated from God, but obviously God has given us a chance to come back to Him. When does that chance finish? When we die, when our physical body dies and we haven't yet accepted God's gift of forgiveness and haven't repented, then that's it. We have made our choice. By not making a choice, we have made our choice. Does that make sense? We only get one life, one chance to choose a heavenly destiny. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. So only get one chance, one life to choose. So now we're going to apply the real-world illustration of the watchman to the spiritual reality. And back in Ezekiel's day, there was actually a literal army coming. So if you've been following along, the Babylonians had already come to Jerusalem and taken prisoners. And Ezekiel was actually one of those prisoners. But the Babylonians hadn't yet completely destroyed the place. And God was still telling them if they turned from their sin that he would stop the Babylonians from coming. The Babylonians were only coming because they were continuing in their sin. They were continuing to refuse to repent and turn to God. They were doing all their idol worship and things like that, in addition to all their worship at the temple. But we'll get into that later as well. So basically, God was saying, if the nation of Israel repented of their sin and turned to God, then God would not have to use a Babylonian army to judge or discipline them. They would be spared. 
they could remain in the promised land and they could enjoy a relationship with and the protection of their God. But if they didn't repent, then they would be destroyed. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. The picture of the Babylonians coming to destroy the nation of Israel is, a, as I said, a great analogy of the dangers of sin for us today. Destruction and captivity, for them, the Babylonians, for us, it's hell or the lake of fire. And it doesn't happen instantly. But if you don't repent, the army will come. Hell and the lake of fire will be real for you. People who choose not to repent will eventually be killed or captured because of their sin. They remain separated from God forever, confined to the lake of fire or hell for all eternity. Now, why does God make this calling to Ezekiel to make a watchman? Why is he making it such an important thing? Such a big thing. He actually says it twice in the book of Ezekiel. He repeats himself. So, I want to go into God's heart and motivation into why he sent Ezekiel to the people. We want to see the big picture here. What's going on in God's heart? Okay, So we're going to read Ezekiel 3, 16-21 and then we'll answer this question. Why would God want Ezekiel to be a watchman and warn people about sin? Why is it so important to God? So Ezekiel 3, 16-21 Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. It's the same as what we read in chapter 33. When I say to the wicked, you must surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. Notice that, to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. You will be held responsible. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, his sin. But you have delivered your soul. You are not responsible for his eternal damnation. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, And I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also you will have delivered your soul. So again, this question, why would God want Ezekiel to be a watchman, warning people of sin? And as we're going to find out in a little bit, it applies to us too. Why is God so insistent that we as believers must warn those around us of the deadly consequences of sin? Why does he make it like we're responsible? Well, the answer is found when we see God's heart and motivation. It comes down to this principle If there's greater privilege or opportunity or authority, then there is greater responsibility. And because God loves the people he created so much, warning them about the eternal consequences of sin is his first priority. Okay, Because he loves us so much, then warning them about sin is his first priority. Why? 
because God wants people to spend eternity with himself and not with Satan in hell. See, hell wasn't created for people. Hell was created for the fallen angels. That's what the Bible says. God never destined anyone to go to hell. He wants all people to be saved. We'll read that later as well. But if a person refuses to repent, then they will end up with the fallen angels forever in hell. So basically, this is a matter of life, eternal life and death. Now, if it's so important to God, then it should also be important to us as God's heart becomes our heart. So let's look at some verses. And remember that turn from his wicked ways is another way of saying what we read a lot in the New Testament, the word repent, turn from sin and turn to God. So Ezekiel 33 verse 11, say to them, as long as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way, that is repent, and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Repent, turn from sin and turn to God. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Can you see God's heart in that verse? Can you see his compassion, his love for them? He has no pleasure in them dying. He wants them to live. Lamentations 3.33 for God does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. And in another translation it says, For God does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. So in the context of the Israelites, God is not having fun sending the Babylonians to discipline his people. It's hurting him, it's grieving him to do that. But he does it for their good. So they can be saved, they can be warned. Ezekiel 18.23 do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Says the Sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways, repent, and live. And Ezekiel 18.30-32 Therefore I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions. Notice the re repentance leads to a change in how we live. You can't just say you believe and not change the way you live. According to your actions, says the Sovereign Lord, repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. A very serious warning. Don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the Sovereign Lord. Turn back, repent and live. Can't get any clearer than that, can it? God's heart for people and his desire to have him live with him in his home and not in Satan's final home. Your sins will destroy you. Put your rebellion behind you. Find yourself a new heart. When we repent, we receive a new heart with new desires that wants to please God. Again, it's not about us having to try harder. It's God. We just allow God to do his work in us. Hosea 11 verse 8 Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. The Israelites, some of them have been killed, some of them have been taken captive into Babylon. This is hurting God. God does not like having to discipline his kids, but he does it because he's a good God. And 
as we're going to find out later, in coming weeks, they will come back to Jerusalem and they will rebuild the city because of this discipline that God has done or allowed has produced repentance in these people. And 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, conclusion for this section from those verses, it's because of his great love for us, God's desire is for all to be saved. Okay, because he loves us so much, he wants us all to be saved so we can spend eternity with him. His heart is torn within him, his compassion overflows. God loves the people he created and therefore he does not want them to perish or remain separate from him for eternity in hell. So God is the ultimate loving and compassionate father. He only wants the best for the people he made. He wants them to be adopted into his family and become his children again. You read that in Romans 8, 15 and 16. Now what's our purpose in life? Isaiah 43, 7 is to bring glory to God. How do we do that? In relationship with God. And God changes us to become like him. And that's what brings glory to God. Now, there's a problem. God wants everyone to come to him and live with him in his beautiful home, heaven. Okay. But God is a holy and just God and so must judge sin. So God loves us, but also God is a just and fair judge and must punish the wicked. So God's attributes. He is loving, but he is also Holy. He's perfect. And so you can't just have a God who is wrathful like some people do and he's going to smash you over the head if you do the wrong thing but doesn't care about you. And you can't just have a God who's so loving he's going to forgive everybody. You have a God who is both loving and holy. So this is why mankind, God's holiness, was why mankind was separated from God even though God still loved them. Just as God is infinitely loving, so he is infinitely holy or perfect. He must judge sin to be true to himself, his nature. And a good psalm to illustrate this part of God's character is Psalm 7, verses 11 to 17. From the NLT paraphrase, it says, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, Notice that if a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. And this is a picture of judgment now. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. The wicked conceive evil. They are pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. They dig a deep pit to trap others. They fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls in their own heads. And then the psalmist says, I will thank the Lord because he is just, he is fair, he is holy. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So, God is angry with the wicked, how often? Every day. Okay. 
If you're not saved, you are under his wrath. It's hard to get your head around it, but he loves you and he's angry with you at the same time if you're not saved. He loves you because he created you, but he's angry with you because of your sin and you're separated because of that. Now, imagine this. I'm trying to try and explain to you what sin is like to God. All right? So I'm sorry for this example, but it's the best I could do. If someone tried to make you eat fresh dog poo, lucky it's not lunchtime, right? You know you smelt the lovely smell of fresh dog poo? And they said, look, eat this. And you go, no, thank you. And if they put it too close to you, they'd probably vomit, yeah? All right. It's disgusting. It's revolting. That's the same effect that sin has on God. So when we sin, when we are living a life that is not pleasing to him, it's disgusting. It's revolting to him like us eating dog poo. He is so holy. God is so holy that he can't even look upon sin. It says in Habakkuk 1.13, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Again, this is why sin separates us from God. Now, at the same time, the psalmist is thankful that God is holy and therefore hates sin. Why? This holiness is what keeps us out of his presence if we're not saved, right? Well, there's a good reason. Imagine what heaven would be like if God allowed sin there, if God wasn't perfect. Heaven is perfect because God is perfect, right? It's God's home. Heaven reflects who God is. Would you still want to go to heaven if there were liars and murderers and thieves and drunkards and drug addicts and all those things in heaven? Who'd want to go to a heaven like that? (laughs) I wouldn't. Again, heaven is only such a wonderful place because it's perfect. There's love, there's peace, there's joy, there's beautiful music, there's perfect relationships, there's no lying, there's no hurting, there's no sorrow, there's no tears, there's no crying. Because there's no sin. Because it's perfect. So here is a dilemma. God loves all people but hates sin. However, all people are born sinful and therefore can't live with him. So humanly speaking, there is no way out for this dilemma. Since Adam sinned, we are stuck. But God has a solution. Out of his great love for us, God makes a way for all to be saved. And this is why Jesus came down from heaven to earth to be both man and God. He took on a human body. He became the only man who lived a perfect life. And because he lived a perfect life, he is the only one who is qualified to be the payment for the sins of all the world. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the payment for our sin. Jesus is the perfect, sinless, spotless and blemish-free Lamb. The only one that could and would be accepted by God the Father as the payment for the sins of all mankind. So it's really important that we understand that God, the Father and Jesus, they both suffered, you know. The Father had to give up his only son. It's a picture of the close relationship and the pain of the Father watching his son suffer. And Jesus himself, actually, in his human life, dying 
on the cross and, and suffering the wrath of God. All the payment for all the anger, the justice was poured out onto Jesus instead of us. So Jesus went to great lengths and suffered excruciatingly when he paid the ultimate price, his very life, to make it possible for people to escape the judgment of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So God's love for people is infinite because he gave the greatest gift. There's nothing more he can do. There's nothing more you can give to anyone else than give them your life. Dying for someone else is the greatest gift. And God did this while we were still his enemies. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, here we have God's love for us and the answer to this dilemma of God loving us but hating sin. I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 6 to 11 from the NLT paraphrase version. When we were utterly helpless, that is, we had no hope of saving ourselves, Christ came at just the right time, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, and died for us sinners. So who did he die for? Sinners. Okay, and remember, all born sinners, right? He died for all humanity. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That means enemies. Enemies in rebellion against him. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now, I bolded that. That's really important. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the full payment for the sins of all mankind. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his Son. So now we can rejoice in a wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Remember that God made Adam, created Adam as his friend in relationship with him. And now, for since our friendship with God was restored, by the death of his son. We are back to what it was when God first made Adam and there was no sin. We have this relationship restored. We have fellowship with God. So two points here I want to just reiterate. In verse 9 it says it's clear, it makes it very clear that the blood of Christ, Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, that is him dying instead of me and you and all people, saves us from God's condemnation. That means we are not found guilty anymore of breaking God's moral law, and therefore we're not deserving of suffering eternal damnation and separation from God in the lake of fire. Instead, because Jesus paid our fine, our sin debt, those who accept this free gift get to go to heaven when they die and spend forever in the presence of God. Why? Because our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. It's beautiful. And just want to help you understand this. It's God took our sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He became sin. He took our sin upon himself. He paid our fine. And now the sin is gone. We are now considered perfect in God's eyes. So now we come to 
repentance. So now we've covered what God's heart is and what he's done for us, how much he loves us. As you read through the Bible, he's always warning people about sin. What did Jesus say? They don't like me because I'm warning, I'm telling them how sinful they are. Now, the next main topic is repentance. We know God's heart. Now, what do we need to do to respond and to receive this gift? We need to repent. And it's found through the entire Bible, and it's applicable to all people groups. What did Jonah say to the Ninevites? Repent, or in 40 days you'll perish. Yeah? It's all through the Bible. John the Baptist said, repent. The Apostle Paul said, repent. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, repent. Jesus, his first message, repent, and so forth. The disciples, as they're going out around the place, repent. Why do we need to repent? Why do we need to tell people to repent of their sins? Because sin separates us from God, and it kills our relationship with God. If our sin, debt, or problem is not dealt with in this life, there will be hell to pay. Literally, eternal suffering in the lake of fire. And this is why a gospel message that doesn't emphasize repentance from sin is a false gospel. We see God giving the gospel in the book of Ezekiel, and what's he doing? Repent of your sin. Turn from your evil ways. You know what? In the church today, you don't hear that very much. Because you don't want to offend people. You don't want them to go away and and not come back. We want them to feel welcome here. They can feel welcome all the way to hell. It's not the friendly thing to do, is it? It's not the loving thing to do. It's to say to people, yeah, God loves you. Yeah, you're okay. You don't need to change. Just keep going like you are. So what does true repentance look like? Now here we get into what is it? The nuts and bolts of repentance. Repentance is not about doing more good works. A lot of people think if I just change myself, improve myself, then I'll become good enough for God to accept me. No. It's not about you making yourself a better person. You cannot ever change who you are on the inside. That's the problem. Only God can do that. So what repentance is, is True repentance, genuine repentance, is a person has a change of heart towards God. They humble themselves. Instead of being proud and resisting God, they humble themselves and they admit that I'm spiritually poor. I'm spiritually bankrupt. There is no good in me. I am completely evil. My sinful nature is completely evil. Do you understand that? That's what the Bible says. Romans 7, in me there dwells no good. And so we have to admit our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy. Because at the core of our being, if we're not saved, we are corrupted. Our nature is corrupted. So this is what a repentant heart looks like. It's humble and submitted to God. A heart that says, not my will, but yours be done. A heart that is willing to be corrected and willing to change to become more like Christ. It's willing to let go of all that sinful life, those sinful attitudes. So genuine repentance is a change of heart towards God that leads to a lasting change in behavior. So 
False repentance, going back to false repentance, is a temporary change in behavior caused by external influences. And this is possible. It's like a worldly guy who changes his behavior so he can win the Christian girl who goes to church. He temporarily gives up his drinking and swearing while around her and even pretends to enjoy going to church. But when they get married, he reverts to his old behaviors. And I've seen plenty of examples of that. Girls and guys getting duped by someone who's had this false change, this outward change, but it's not coming from the inside. Another form of false repentance is the fear produced by legalism. It's the you must do this or you will go to hell type thinking. So these people go to church, change their diet, adopt certain religious practices, but not because they want to, not because they love God and want to bless him, not because they have a new heart that truly desires these things, but only because of fear. If they weren't made to think they had to, then they wouldn't. In contrast, a person who is genuinely saved will have been given a new heart with new desires by God, and they can't help but change to become more like Christ because they have given God permission to produce this change in them. Remember that a changed life is evidence of a changed or repentant heart. And a good scripture to go through is James. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. You won't do it now, but in there is this principle of faith without works is dead. And he says, if you say you have faith, but there's no works to go along with it, then you're lying. You're fooling yourself. So, Philippians 1, 6 being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Sanctification. God is the one who changes. He who began will also complete. So God does this change in us. Right? We can't change ourselves. So although God is the one who changes us to become more like himself, and this is sanctification, and 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. We must first be willing to change. And this is what genuine repentance is. It's the willingness or desire to change to become like Christ. It's a change of heart towards God that leads to a changed life. You could say that repentance is us giving God permission to change us to become like himself. So I'll read that last line again. You could say that true repentance is us giving God permission to change us to become like himself. So, the big issue is we can't go to heaven as sinners. We have to have our sin dealt with. We must be made like God. But we're born with a sinful nature, which doesn't fit in. God looks at us and he goes, yuck, dog poo. All right. God gives us this invitation. So I've written this invitation. Try to capture God's heart in the way I believe that God is speaking to us through the scripture. So imagine this. God says to each of us, I fervently love you and greatly desire for you to spend eternity in heaven with me. However, sin has corrupted your nature. You were born sinful, wicked and evil in everything you think, say and do. Therefore, because I am holy and perfect and you are not, you can't come into my presence. Your sin has separated you from me. Also, you are guilty of a great many crimes against my moral law. 
lying, stealing, lusting, hating, murdering, all those things. And so you deserve to be punished. Your sin has separated you from me. But because I love you, I paid your sin debt by becoming a man and dying in your place. But you still need to be changed back into my image. Would you please repent? That is, be willing to give up your sinful ways and give me permission to change you from loving sinful things to loving me. Remember, you can't change yourself. Also, will you trust that my sacrifice on the cross was a full payment for all your sins? If so, with these two things, repent and believe, I will adopt you back into my family and you will live with me forever. So there's two things. The believing is the sin debt being paid, but the sanctification, the repentance, is us willing to be changed to become like God so we're ready when we die to be with him in heaven. No repentance, no change. Can't go. And we also don't receive that forgiveness of sins either. It comes as a package. So why do most people refuse to repent? There's one thing, one main thing, and we'll read it in a sec from John, that stops people. It's a stumbling block that stops most people from accepting God's invitation to spend forever with him as his child, his son. Would you please repent, that is, be willing to give up your sinful ways and give me permission to change you from loving sinful things to loving me. Remember, you can't change yourself. So the problem is that most people don't want to change. As you go through the book of Ezekiel, the people did not want to change. Even with the discipline, they still didn't change. They weren't willing to humble themselves and say, I'm sorry, God, I'm willing to do things your way from now on. Their sinful nature loves sinning and they just don't want to stop. Now, it's not like people actually want to go to hell. Everybody wants to go to heaven. If you stop someone on the street and you ask them, hey, do you want to go to heaven or hell when you die? Of course they're going to say heaven, right? But they are simply not willing to forsake their sin. To them, and this is what it comes down to, enjoying fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the desires of their sinful human nature, for a few short years down here, is more important to them than eternity with God forever. And Jesus spoke about this in John 3, 18-21. It says this, He who believes in him, God, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. So this belief, okay, this trusting in Jesus' sacrifice, being the payment for our sins. So he who believes in God is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. This shows those who do believe and those who don't believe, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So you can see this is repentance here, right? It's talking about belief and repentance. Men love darkness rather than light, and they wouldn't come to God, they wouldn't change. They wouldn't give up the old life. Therefore, they could not be saved. 
So remember, we can't change ourselves and God won't change us against our will. Repentance, as a reminder here, repentance is not about doing more good works or improving ourselves so that we can become acceptable to God, working our way to heaven. It's a changed heart, a heart that is submitted to God and wants to be like God that produces a changed life. Now, I want to go through, and this is for those who are already saved. Repentance continues after a person is saved. So initial repentance and belief brings us into relationship with God, Mark 1.15. And repentance continues after we are saved, and we need it because we need to maintain our relationship with God. I'll read a couple of scriptures. Jude verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So keep yourselves in the love of God. That's our responsibility as a Christian, right? Talking to Christians now, those who are believers. Keep yourselves in the love of God. John 15, 10 to 11. If you keep my commandments, Jesus is talking to his disciples and to us as well, by application, to other believers by application. If you keep my commandments, you will abide, that is, remain or stay in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide or stay in his love. See, he's maintaining that relationship by obedience. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So it's all about what we do. As a Christian, what we do is very important. God does the work in us, and we submit. We allow God to do his work, and that keeps us in relationship with God, in the love of God. We don't lose our salvation, yeah? But we can lose the joy and the peace, as we're going to find out. Philippians 4, 8 and 9, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, (laughs) not learn about, but do, yeah? And the God of peace will be with you. So, think about your life. And I have to do this as well. The things that you watch on the screen, the games, if you play games, the activities you participate in, the friends you keep, the company you keep, does it fit this criteria? Is it just, pure, lovely, good report, true, noble, praiseworthy? Yeah? So as a Christian, we need to get rid of all those things. We need to repent of those things and Turn away from the, what is bad and go to what is good. So again, it's not about losing our salvation, but we lose the peace and joy of our salvation. And as Jude implies, if we're not building up our faith, then we're allowing sin to tear it down. We're allowing sin to come in and pull us away from God, you see. We're either growing closer to God as we become more pure, less sinful, or we grow further away from God as we allow sin to take root in our hearts and to dominate us. So maintaining our relationship is simply staying or remaining or abiding in his love. Sin, and remember I'm talking to Christians here, sin is what causes us not to abide 
not to be in the love of God, not to continue to experience the love of God and the peace and the joy that follows. Jesus said, if you keep my commands, and then he finished with, I'm saying this so that your joy will be full, yeah? Repentance, this is what repentance is as a Christian, this is the continued repentance. Repentance is what brings us back into fellowship with God, back into his love, as we deal with and get rid of the sin that keeps us from his love. We do that by repenting of it. We need to keep repenting because God is in the business of changing people from sinful to perfect. And guess what? He doesn't do it all at once. It would be too much if he did it all at once, okay? So what he does is he shows you something and then you repent of that thing and then that's good. You're strong in that area and then he shows you something else. You go, oh, that hurts. I've got to give that up too. Yeah, you've got to give that up too. If you want to get closer to me, if you want to experience more love and peace, you've got to give that up too. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> Dying to self, you see. Dying to self. Dying to the old life. Got to give it up. You want to grow closer to God? Give up the old stuff. John Stott said, everybody is as close to God at this moment as they choose to be. So, Luke 9.23, die to self, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. This is continued repentance. It's a lifelong process. So like in the parable of prodigal son, in Luke 15.11, God is watching and waiting, always ready to run and meet us as soon as we come to our senses and realize that our sinful ways are only hurting us and the temporary pleasure of sin isn't worth it. And we come to our senses when we realize that all we need and all we are really looking for can only be found in a close love relationship with our Heavenly Father. If you start to understand that, then we'll be willing to get rid of the sin, you see. Now, conclusion, just to quickly go over what we've learned today. God's heart. What's God's heart toward us? Why is it important that we understand that God loves us lots and lots? In fact, infinitely. We have to understand that it grieves him to have to discipline us and even more to have to condemn us to hell for eternity. That'll be the hardest thing. You make someone, God makes someone, and then that person rejects him, and then God has to be the judge to send them to hell. When God has already paid the price for them not to go to hell. That would hurt. So bringing people back to himself is God's greatest desire, the driving force behind all prophecy and his activity among us. is what Jesus came for, you see. God is enlisting us to be his soldiers in this war over the souls of men. And this is an incredible privilege, and we need to take it seriously. So it's the war over the souls of men. Satan is trying to keep people in his kingdom, God is trying to pull them out and win them to his kingdom. Now, God's message, what is God's message? The picture of Ezekiel being God's mouthpiece to warn the people to turn from the evil way. So, take the words from me and you tell them to the people. So, these words, this message, so that the children of Israel could stay in the land and be spared the 
Babylonian invasion helps us to understand our spiritual predicament. If I repent, submitting to God, I can avoid certain judgment, eternity in the lake of fire. Just like the Israelites could avoid the Babylonian invasion if they just repented and started obeying God. And finally, our motivation to be a watchman is love, a genuine concern for their eternal destiny, other people's eternal destiny. So here, consider a soldier on the battlefield facing great danger. You know, you've got that war in Ukraine at the moment. Now, the Ukrainian soldiers, they're very brave, they're outnumbered by a lot, by a massive army, but they're still fighting back. Many of them have been killed. Their country is being torn apart. They know they could get killed any moment as they fight for their country. Now, if we asked, I reckon, just about any of those soldiers, why are you willing to make this sacrifice? He would reply, or she would reply, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Why? I love my family and I love my country. I will do anything to protect them from the enemy. And the same with the Australian soldiers in World War I, World War II. You know, we're protecting our freedom and doing it for your family, doing it for your country, out of love. So once we repent and believe, coming back into God's team, being adopted back into his family, then we should have the same kind of sacrificial love for people as God does. We should be willing to share the gospel with anyone, no matter what the cost. God's heart becomes our heart as we are transformed into his image. Then our calling as a watchman, with our message of repent and believe, becomes more of a privilege and an honor than it does a responsibility or a sacrifice. Something, oh, God wants me to share the gospel with that person. What if they, what if they laugh at me? Oh no, it's terrible. So 2 Corinthians 5.20 So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And that's basically what God said in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 3 and 33. So Father, help us to remember, Lord, the eternal destiny of all people without you, and that's hell, the lake of fire for eternity. But Lord, you came, you died, Jesus died on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. And now to receive that gift, we need to be willing to change. We need to have a soft heart, we need a humble heart, willing to let go of the old life and allow you to do your amazing miracle of sanctification where you change us from being who we are as a sinner to being a perfect child of God. A process which will take place over the course of our whole life, from the day we are saved to the day we die, or the day we are raptured. So I thank you for the promise that you have given, both that your blood is everything we need to be forgiven, and that you will change us. And all we need to do to accept these gifts is to repent to be willing to let go of the old life and to follow you in obedience and submission. So we just pray that if anyone hasn't done that, they would do that. And Lord, for us who are believers, Lord, I pray that we would continue to submit, continue to repent, so we can grow closer to you and 
experience a deeper and more satisfying and more intimate relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.